it's not like an invitation and where you know <laughs> that it's like it's a forced thing like okay we're inviting you um we're gonna have pizza but it's like that's all that I know about this whole invitation it's like if you're gonna invite me pizza I'm gonna show up and I'm gonna eat your pizza but I really can't tell you that that's engagement that's Maria Feliciano as a mother of a child with a disability she has lived through the challenges of family engagement in the school context challenges that we're examining in this podcast series looking at the ways schools across the country have been working to improve student outcomes by addressing their behavioral health needs. I'm Jackie Green of Policy Research Associates, where we operate the National Center for Mental Health and Juvenile Justice. And today we're asking, how do schools, providers, and even advocates get to authentic engagement of families? Is it true that those families that are hardest to engage just don't care or are themselves the problem? Cecilia Singh, a licensed clinical psychologist who works at Yale University's Child Study Center studied that very question while getting her PhD. What I did was I had focus groups and I was very interested in engagement in general and I asked providers what was happening, how they understood engagement and why it was or was not happening with families and then I also asked families how they, why engagement was happening or not happening with professionals. And in these focus groups that I did, what, what was very, very um, interesting was that, again, professionals saw parents as not wanting to come to the table because they just didn't care sometimes or that they weren't um, um, interested in their child's education. Yet the parents were telling me something very different. And what they were telling me through my dissertation work was that they really feared actually having a voice. They feared going to that table and having five professionals with um, different credentials where they didn't have any credentials, talking to them about their child. And while they had so much to share with professionals, they feared doing that because they were very nervous. Maria can testify to these feelings of fear when trying to work with the school to help her son. At first, it was very scary um, because this was my third child that had some, you know, mental health um, needs. And I was intimidated, although I had learned a couple things. And I had been an advocate for myself. I, you know, I learned to use my voice. But I kind of bottled up into that little girl again. And I could not do anything for my son at first. I was fearful. Fear was like the strongest emotion that was driving me. I was angry. And I felt defensive. I felt like I got to protect him. Because the same thing that happened to me is going to happen to him because I started seeing in him behaviors that I displayed, that I struggled with, that I didn't really understand then that it was part of, you know, a need that I had. Um, and I would sit in these meetings and they're telling me what's gonna happen. And so I started, you know, just kind of closing in in a bubble. My fear, um, as a parent is the power because whatever that professional writes on a piece of paper 
really determines what can happen with me and my family. And like whether it was DCF or whether it was the school system, it was like them versus me. And I think the biggest fear is your family to be broken. Our fear is that someone else wants to come in and take over the role as a parent because of their authority, because of what they know, because of their, you know, their profession. Cecilia's focus on identifying factors like fear as barriers to family engagement is grounded in her own experience of school and family as a child. She lived firsthand the impact that culture can have on parents' relationships with school personnel. I'm a first-generation American. Um, English is not my first language. Spanish is. Um, I, my father uh, immigrated from Cuba, or rather he was a Cuban refugee and, and came over in the last freedom flights of the 60s um, um, to Miami. My mom is uh, from Venezuela, um, and they came here, um, and here, meaning Massachusetts, in a to a small city called Chelsea, Massachusetts, where they were at that point um, uh, looking for lots of immigrants to work in factories. So I was born a year later. And um, what you should know about Chelsea, Massachusetts is that it's uh, the poorest town in the state of Massachusetts. It has the highest um, dropout rate um, in the state, or at least at one point it did. I'm not sure if that's shifted. Um, and um, it also had, at one point, the highest pregnancy rate. And that's where I was born. I was born and raised there. And um, I did not know English. And at that point, I was in bilingual classes to about fifth grade, fourth grade, excuse me. And so I learned English as a second language. All of my subjects, math, etc., were in Spanish. My parents were always working. I... I don't think I remember them ever, ever missing a day of work, whether they were sick or not. They didn't necessarily know, because of the language limitations, how to engage with school providers. My parents were invited before, but they couldn't come in. They couldn't come in because they were working. They couldn't come in because in their culture, they were trained to defer to authority, not to talk back. So they had this very kind of, I don't want to say closed way, this cultural way of understanding what the educational system was. Fortunately for Cecilia, a mentor in her elementary school noticed her great potential and advocated for her to have academic opportunities. And while her parents were not active inside the school building, they emphasized the importance of education at home. I remember um, we, were, we were very poor. And on the refrigerator, uh, my parents loved the Kennedys. And I remember that they paraphrased um, something, and it was on the board. And it said, um, it is not what you can do um, for yourself. It's what you can do for your family, or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And there was a second saying. And the second saying was that education um, is the richest gift that life could offer. And I, I often think about those two sayings that were a part of the refrigerator. Because I think what they were saying to me is, as a Latina woman, that family is foundational. They were also saying to me that 
my ticket out of poverty is education, and they wanted me to excel. It was about having that one mentor and having um, parents who, you know, necessarily couldn't be at the table all of the time, but were paying attention to what it is that I needed. And that made the difference of getting me from Chelsea, Mass to Yale. Developing strategies to engage parents who are often viewed as difficult to engage can be instrumental in improving outcomes for children who are struggling at school. After her son switched to a new school, Maria began to experience what she felt was a truly authentic form of engagement. IPs and, you know, when we were doing all that, trying to figure out what needs he had. Um, and I was part of the conversation, you know. The, actually, the conversation revolved around me, what I thought about things, and that was different than the meetings that I was having in the beginning. What was working, I could even share my fears, you know, like, look, at this is what I'm trying at home and it's not working. I work long hours. I don't have the luxury of not working. Sometimes, you know, what can I do? And we were really partnering up and I didn't feel like defeated. Um, it wasn't like, I wasn't repeating myself over and over and over again about what's happening. It's like the professionals in front of me were getting it and they were listening to me and I felt heard and his needs were being met. You know, he was being included in things, not excluded. They start finding his strengths to put him in situations. You know, he likes to help, right? So they will put him to help the younger kids to read or to do something and help feel included, you know, and not going to the punitive. This kind of authentic engagement with families can also benefit big picture work on policymaking that impacts young people at risk of system involvement. Abby Anderson, the executive director of Connecticut's Juvenile Justice Alliance, often runs into the common roadblocks standing in the way of meaningful family engagement. We certainly run into people who are having a hard time with why you would engage families or why you would want family input. There is still, um, you know, for, for decades, the understanding was if kids are acting in a delinquent way, well, obviously it's because they aren't being parented well, and, and that's what the problem is. And so why would you ask the parents to be part of the solution? They are the problem. Um, and so what we need to do to fix this situation is remove the kid from that situation and remove them from their family, remove them from their community, um, because that's where all the negative influence is. And so there is still some of that of, but the parents are bad. Um, and there is still some of, well, most of the parents might be okay, but this kid's mom is strung out on heroin. Like, she can't be part of the solution. Um, or you hear people who say, I know that you want me to ask the family what they need and what they want, but I'm a clinician, and I've done all the assessments, and I know what they need, and they might not agree with me. Um, so what do we do about that? So you get, you get the full range of pushback from, I just philosophically don't agree with you, to I philosophically agree with you, but I don't get it, and how am I actually going to do this? And so I think what has ha what has helped in order to move people from this is a dumb idea and I hate it to maybe this is okay is, I mean, the typical advocate's toolkit of persistence, 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 and just um, refusing to shut up about it, but also helping people see that 
the outcomes are better and the outcomes that they want to achieve are better um, because almost without fail, everybody I've met doing this work from every table and every viewpoint wants the best outcomes for kids and communities. And when you can start showing that that's what's happening, they will buy in and understand and say, okay, so maybe this particular mom isn't in the position to be able to really be helpful right now. So how do we help her meet her needs? Moving to a place of meaningful incorporation of families, both at the systems level and at the individual case level, can be difficult. Abby explains a couple of strategies that she is using in her work. You know, I think what we're learning is humility and that we know what we know, which is we know how to do policy work and we know how to form relationships and we know how to get at some tables. We don't know what it's like to live this every day. We don't know what it's like to have um, been in the system to have a child in the system. So we need to really do a lot of listening. And we need to be willing to say, we don't know how to do this best. Can you teach us? Can you let us know what we're doing well? Can you let us know what we need to be doing differently? But so a lot of listening and a lot of reaching out to those people who know better. So people who have been doing this work in other fields. So the mental health, behavioral health field is much more progressed than the juvenile justice world is. So we've been really reaching out to those folks a lot. There are some really generous um, and smart parent engagement um, specialists and also parents who have, just through their own force of will, become policy experts. So really reaching out to them and saying, what do we do and, and how do we do this? Cecilia has worked with many school personnel and service providers to help them develop practices that support authentic relationships with families. Her experience leads her to believe that there are three necessary steps for professionals to develop this skill set. The first step in this true engagement is letting clinicians, mental health workers, um, those who are working with children and families know that they themselves, we all have biases. We have a value system and a belief system that whether it's alive in the room or not is always with us. So I think that step one is to provide professionals with professional opportunities to become more self-reflective and self-aware as they're working with individuals who are different than they are, in particular with um, the growing diverse population that we are dealing with here in particular um, in the state of Connecticut. Um, I think that the second step is also to not make professionals feel bad about having these biases because we all have them, so I t typically generalize it. Understand that we need to use a more empathic lens to work with these children effectively, children and families. Once we actually get them to believe or, or, or to feel as though, um, and this is my mantra that I'll pass on, everyone, including all of us here, typically do the best that they can with what they have at any given time. 
And once they understand that, whether they're working with a child or again, the caregiver parent family, um, then they begin to feel, they begin to understand that this child who is being disruptive in the classroom is probably responding to some unknown at times trigger that is a result of potentially trauma or other difficulties that they're facing in their life. Mm -hmm. So empathy would be the second step. I think that the third step then is to build that relationship between the provider and the child through empathy and through self-awareness, then the child and the parent and the family begin to trust the school system or the system in general and begin to actually um, tell their story in a way that's very authentic. They can tell their story. This is a consistent person who's there. And when that happens, something else happens, and that is that there's a hope. People move from, from feeling despair or feeling shame and guilt to feeling more hopeful. And what that, is, what that does in the last step of this process is it then fuels or jumpstarts that next family, that next student saying, I did it, I felt safe, I had a really positive experience, and I did it in these ways. And then they pass it on within their community, which is what we want, mm -hmm. because it's about sustainability. It's about providing them with a positive relationship, a mentoring relationship where they're not feeling judged, and they can pass it on to that next person. Abby has also experienced this kind of community-level positive outcome as a result of real engagement of families in her advocacy work. We had this powerful situation when we were working on the Raise the Age campaign, where one of the reasons that campaign really shifted into high gear was because a young man had killed himself in our adult facility, and he was 16. And we have what's called Manson Youth Institution, which is a misnomer. It's an adult prison run by the Adult Department of Correction, but because of the, the screwiness of Connecticut's laws and how young we could magically decide that people under the age of 18 are grown-ups, we had a separate prison for those 14 to 21. So that's where he was, and he had had a long history of mental health and behavioral health issues. He had been in and out of programs, and he had been put in prison on a, um, on a probation violation, and he was awaiting um, his next step, and he hung himself in his cell. And his mother got involved in our work. And at that time, one of the biggest pushbacks on raising the age was, well, it's too expensive. It just, it would cost too much money. And completely unprompted from us, um, the mother called and said, I want to get involved. I want to testify. And what she sent us was testimony saying, you know, when you say that, it's about the money. You're saying that my son wasn't worth it. And I just want to know if your son is worth it or somebody else's son is worth it because we have the money. Every family that budgets creates their own budget of what they're going to spend. And the state is the same thing. And you're creating a budget that doesn't prioritize my kid. And that's a problem. And just watching 
the shift that happened after she testified publicly, there wasn't a politician who was willing to talk about the price of that change publicly from that day on. And for Maria, the key to her successful relationship with her son's school was, in the end, quite simple. It's not a program or a policy or a great event at the school. It really comes down to developing trusting relationships rooted in our common humanity. It's something you do. It's not something that you could create. And, you know, that's why we keep sitting at these tables. We keep thinking about all this. Oh, well, if we don't give them pizza, we got to feed them. You know, well, I think you feed anybody, whether it's a meeting with parents or anybody, if you want to feed them. But if you make it about that, then believe it or not, you take on that message. You kind of get it. Where when it's something that's happening and you're just doing it, it just happens, you know. So, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that that was the difference. It's the people that show up and stay that make the difference. This podcast was made possible in collaboration with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. And through the support of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention School Justice Partnership Program. I'd like to thank Maria Feliciano, Cecilia Singh, and Abby Anderson for sharing their time and perspectives. For more information on how youth and family engagement can support the work of school responder models, check out the other two podcasts in this series, in which we hear more voices from the field sharing professional and lived experiences with direct and authentic youth and family engagement.